Now let's turn to the uh, third chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we'll continue our studies in this great letter to the church in the city of Corinth. As we've seen, what Paul is doing is contrasting two kinds of wisdom, what he calls the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. We would say today secular wisdom and biblical wisdom or thinking. And Paul's point is that though the wisdom of the world may look good and it may come through eminent authorities and respected theologians and clergymen or through um, highly educated men, well-qualified specialists in the fields of anthropology or psychology or political science, if their thinking is not based on scripture, then it's the wisdom of men. And as we saw in chapter 2, the Spirit of God takes the deep things, the things that are in the heart of God, and he passes them on to the apostles, and then through the process of inspiration, those words were recorded for us, and what we have today in Scripture is the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of man. And this is the book on which we ought to base our personal lives, our life as a church, our business lives, every aspect of, of life. Now, Paul's problem, or the problem in Corinth, as Paul uh, indicates it, is that the thinking of the world had invaded the church. Instead of having a, an effect upon the world around them, the world around them was having an effect upon the church. And Paul says, you're thinking like men, like mere men. That's his point in the first four verses of chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For whenever one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Now, you'll have to remember these are Christians that he's speaking to. He refers to them here as brethren. And uh, as we indicated in the first message uh, on this book, these were this was a well-taught church. They had a number of gifted leaders and teachers in the church in Corinth, and they were evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. And yet Paul says, you're fleshly, you're men of the flesh. You'll recall from the King James translation the word carnal, which is here translated men of the flesh. Our word carnal is based on a, a Latin word that means flesh. It's the same term. And uh, what he's saying is that though you're believers, you're still acting like, like men. You're characterized by the flesh. Now, when Paul first came to Corinth, that wasn't a problem. He uh, planted a church there and uh, he, he drew the believers together and he began to instruct them. And the fact that they were acting like mere men then was not a problem to Paul because that's characteristic of a new Christian. As we saw last week, the mind of Christ is not something that we automatically receive simply because we've been regenerated. It takes time to think as God thinks and to have his perspective on things. And that comes from Scripture and through study of Scripture. And uh, these people hadn't had time yet to grow up. They were still thinking like men. 
though they were Christians. We've all experienced that sort of thing. I can remember back in the years when I was working with students that uh, some of these young men and women would come to the Lord out of the some of the more radical political movements, and though they were Christians, they were still thinking like like radicals. And I can remember on one occasion when a group of students took away our sound equipment. We used to have street rallies out in the plaza in the middle of the campus, and they took away our our microphones and sound equipment and set them up on another part of the plaza. And they began to uh, they began to speak to a group there and. A number of these students got together and they decided that they would rush the microphones and they would take them out of their hands and forcibly uh, remove them. And we had to remind them, no, that's not the way God does things. He has a different way of, of operating. You couldn't blame them for thinking that way because they were just, just babies. They were new Christians and they were thinking like the world. Even Paul had that problem as he, uh, as he describes his conversion. And as Luke describes it in the book of Acts, Paul was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus with letters giving him authority to to uh, cast uh, Christians into jail. And on the way, he was he was arrested by the Lord, and he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus and made his way on up to Damascus. And after a period of time, he began to preach in the synagogues, to preach Jesus as the Messiah. And what went through Paul's mind is that he unquestionably was God's gift to uh, to the Jewish race. He was highly trained, and he was a rabbi and a member of the Sanhedrin in in Jerusalem, and eminently equipped, you see, to uh, uh, to uh, overthrow their thinking and to introduce them to the Messiah. And what he did was create a riot. <coughs> they uh, they. Uh, rioted against the Christians. The Christians got together and said, we've got to get rid of Paul before he destroys the work of God in the city of Damascus. And in the middle of the night, they took him to the city and uh, to the walls of the city and they let him down the side of the wall in a basket and he fled for his life through the, through the night like a criminal. And Paul says, that was the most important event in my life because I learned then that God has a different way of doing things. Now, that's what Paul is saying in these verses. When I first came to Corinth, Though you were believers, you were acting like mere men, and I would expect that. And not enough time had elapsed for you to grow up. But the problem, he says, is that, that you're still acting like men, uh, and that that's to your shame, because you should by this time have grown up. Because, he says, there's jealousy and strife among you. Now, he's not saying that it was their jealousy and strife that made them fleshly. This uh, spirit of striving and competition and jealousy was a sign of their fleshly thinking. They were acting like men in the world because that's the way the average man in the world, the non-Christian man, acts. That's the way business operates on the basis of competition and striving and, and getting ahead as best you can. And Paul says the fact that that's seen in the church is an indication that that you're still acting like men. You want appreciation. You want everyone to notice you. You won't serve quietly and, and without notice. You want to be applauded. You want to be put on a pedestal and recognized, and or, or otherwise you get resentful and jealous instead of serving quietly where the Lord uh, where the Lord places you. And 
And furthermore, he says, you're like, uh, you're, you're worshiping heroes. For whenever one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you, are you not mere men? So they were centering on men and believing that men were the key to everything. And men had the power to, to change lives. And if one could simply adopt a particular philosophy of a man and get his system down, then he'd have power. And Paul says, you simply don't understand. You don't understand God's way of looking at men because men are nothing more than servants. In verse 5, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now that, Paul says, is the perspective that we ought to have on leadership within the church. Instead of the spirit of competition and, and striving and uh, pushing to get ahead and to be recognized and appreciated, we ought to view these men simply as servants. That's the highest rank in the body of Christ. The servant is one who isn't particularly noticed, he's not recognized or applauded, he just serves quietly. I remember a number of years ago when I was on the campus back in the, the years when there were very few Christians on that particular campus, we invited a very prominent Christian speaker to, to come to, uh, to speak. And as I recall, this was in a fraternity meeting, and only three men showed up, and he wouldn't speak to them. He walked out because that was beneath his dignity. It's so unlike the Lord, you see, who on his way to heal the rich man's daughter. There's, now, there's an opportunity to make a name for yourself because that certainly would be noticed and written up in the Jerusalem Post and some poor, wretched woman stops him along the way and he stops everything to minister to one woman. See, now, that's the spirit of Christ. That's what it means to be a servant. That's the highest rank that you can achieve. Um, in Santa Cruz, California, each year during the Easter holiday, they used to have something that was called Cruise Week. And students from all over the Bay Area would uh, would gather on the beaches. There would be thousands of, of students sleeping on the beach. And they'd spend the entire Easter week there, and it became it was a great opportunity to to evangelize. And we used to take teams there to minister. And uh, we had a number of students that we had met with and we had trained them in, in evangelism and follow-up and, and given them some idea of the, uh, of the dignity and enormity of this task. And they were so excited about going down there to, to serve the Lord in this way. A businessman in the community had given us a, a building right on the beach to use as a coffee house. And so we were going to serve meals there and we had music and, and periodically the the gospel would be presented and people could talk to students on at, around the tables and they were excited about this great opportunity to serve God in this way. And when we got down there, the man who was in charge of the coffee house came out to the car and he said, we've got a little bit of a problem. The latrines are dirty and uh, someone has to clean them up and out he came with his mops and pails and, and sponges and disinfectant and he send all, sent all these kids into the, into the uh, latrines to clean them. And that's the sort of thing you see that's expected. That's service, serving quietly, where no one notices. Doing the sort of thing that's not normally applauded. Accepting the Lord's call at 
face value in simply doing what he calls us to do. I picked up a poem this past week that states this principle, I think, very well. Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. Then he pointed me out a tiny spot and said, Tend that for me. I answered quickly, Oh, no, not that. Why, no one would ever see. No matter how well my work was done, not that little place for me. And the word he spoke, it was not stern. He answered me tenderly. Ah, little ones, search that heart of yours. Are you working for them or for me? Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. You see, that's, that's the spirit of the Lord. That's, that's servanthood. To be willing to serve unnoticed, without any recognition. And the Lord says, or Paul says, that's the way you should look at us. Now, I don't know how you view ministers within the church. And when I say ministers, I don't, I'm not just thinking of pastors, but of anyone who serves in a position of leadership. Because as you know, the viewpoint that the New Testament takes is that of multiple leadership. There's no such thing as one man controlling a church in the New Testament. In fact, that, that point of view is condemned by John, who speaks of diatrophies, who love to have the preeminence. Uh, the, the viewpoint of the New Testament is that the church is is led by a team of men, a group of men who share authority equally and they teach and lead and serve in this way, in concert with one another. This is the ministry of the church. But but nevertheless, how do we how do we regard them? Do we put them on pedestals and and uh, give them titles of respect that set them apart from us? Or do we think that they have some kind of special pipeline to God that no one else has? One of my favorite stories uh concerns a phone call that came into a church office one day, and the church secretary picked it up, and the man on the other end of the line said, uh, tell me, who's the head hog at the trough? And uh, the la- young lady was a little bit disturbed, and she said, well, she said, we hardly ever refer to the right Reverend Johnson in that way. And the man said, well, I don't care what you call him, but I have a check for $10,000, and I want to know who's the head hog at the trough. And the secretary said, well, uh, here comes that big pig down the hall right now. <coughs> that, for me, sort of puts things in perspective. They're just servants. They do what they're told. And then he spells out that, that servanthood in verses 6 through 9. I planted, that's the particular opportunity that the Lord gave Paul, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Paul uses a figure taken right out of their culture, that of uh, farming. And he says the ministry is like a cooperative farm. Where I planted, Paul planted the church there in Corinth. He preached the gospel. He left behind a a foundation of apostolic teaching. And Apollos built on that. uh, he, uh, He watered. He irrigated the crop. 
but it's God who gives the increase. Now, again, when you think of a, of a minister, perhaps you think of someone dressed in, in a distinctive sort of garb. But uh, when Paul envisions the ministry of, of God's servant, he pictures him as a farmer with bib overalls and a straw hat, rubber boots, and a trenching shovel over his shoulder going out to irrigate the crop. That's the way he served. Now, sowing and watering are human activities. Anyone can sow and water. A child can carry out those activities. Only God can cause growth. That's his point. God will take a man and he'll put him in a particular position and he'll give him a special role for a time to plant or to water or to carry out some form of service. But it's not the man who's significant, it's God. He's the one who's working in hearts to apply the word to lives and to change lives. Only God can cause growth. And Paul says we're not anything. God is the significant one. And furthermore, he says we're not in competition. He who plants and he who sows are one. We're not competing with one another. We're working together for your good. You see, Cole Church is not in competition with Treasure Valley Bible Church or Second Baptist or Fellowship Baptist. We're working together. The pastors here and other ministers, leaders, are not in competition with one another. The staff here is not. We're working together, serving you in whatever way God gives us opportunity. And uh, we as leaders should never feel threatened by your leadership when when people begin to exercise their gifts and to teach. And some of you may have, have greater teaching gifts than anyone yet uh, uh, functioning as your elders or leaders. We need to encourage that. We're not competitors. When God uses anyone to touch another life and to cause growth. Right now, Jim uh, Hollingsworth, one of our young men, is preaching at, at the Free Methodist Church here in town. Now, that's exciting to me. Steve, in a few weeks, is going over to Treasure Valley Bible Church to, uh, to speak on Sunday morning. That's why I've, say, I've said so many times, it doesn't matter to me where people go to church as long as they're being fed. That's the important thing, as long as they're growing. And if God uses another man to touch another life and to do so in a way that none of us can do, then we ought to be excited about that because the important thing is that people grow. Not that we receive the credit for it. We're not in competition. We're cooperating together for your good. And then Paul changes the symbol. The symbol of a field is the Lord's uh, metaphor because the Lord lived in the countryside and his symbols tend to be more rural. Paul was a city man. He was an urban Man, and so his symbols tend to be cities, uh, symbols taken out of city life, and he describes the process as that of building. Verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Laying the foundation is comparable to planting or sowing. Paul says, like a like an architect and uh, construction foreman, I laid the foundation. I drafted the plan and I, I planted the church there and I laid the foundation of apostolic preaching. And Apollos now is, is, 
is building a structure on that foundation. Now, he's not here talking about building individual lives. Sometimes this passage is applied that way. He's rather talking about building a church. The church is the building that God is preoccupied with, not a building of brick and mortar and stone. It's people. We're the church. We're the temple of God. And uh, Paul had laid the foundation of that structure, and now Apollos was building upon it. And then there's the warning note, let each man be careful how he builds. And that's a a warning addressed not to the individual, but to the leaders, the ministers within the church who who were building the superstructure on the foundation. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's only one foundation, and it only has to be laid once. And that's the Lord Jesus. And then the building is erected on that foundation. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire. So you have the foundation, which is the apostolic preaching of the gospel upon which the church was built, and then you have the church being built either with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and and stubble, or straw. And you'll note that these are two entirely different types of building materials. Same insight you get from the story of the three little pigs. Uh, Gold, silver, and precious stones endure. They remain. Wood, hay, and stubble, those are combustible materials. They'll burn up. They don't last. And Paul says the time is coming when the fire will try the quality of the building. He's referring to the day of Christ when the Lord comes back to judge all things and to set everything right, and then the quality of the building will be tested. And if the building is built with gold, silver, and precious stones, it will endure. Now, he's talking about the kind of structure that is built through the ministry of the servants within the body, those who are teaching and building the structure. And the question then is, How do you build with gold, silver, and precious stones? And what is it that produces wood, hay, and stubble? Because I don't think any of us, any of your leaders here, anyone who has a teaching ministry or one of the supporting leadership ministries within our body wants to build with with, uh, wood, hay, and stubble. How do you build with gold, silver, and precious stones? Well, Paul has been telling us. You build on the basis of the wisdom of God. You teach people about life. You teach them the great mysteries of God, these hidden things in the heart of God that, that show us how to live life acceptably and joyfully, to live with grace and power and strength. These are the secrets of God that we must know as men and women in order to, to cope with life, live life adequately. Uh, they're the, the secrets that are, that are in contrast to the world's way of living life. The world says, if you want to be satisfied, then find someone to serve you. If you want to be happy in your marriage, then find the perfect partner who always meets your needs and who, 
who satisfy you, satisfies you on every level at all times, you see, and then you'll have a happy marriage. But God tells us a secret. He tells us you'll never build a marriage on that basis. It's not a matter of finding the right kind of person, but of being the right kind of person, it's serving the other individual. And if you give your life and you give it away, and you stop trying to to get everything going your way and have everyone meet your needs and satisfy you entirely, then you'll be fulfilled. If you live life to be satisfied, you'll never be fulfilled. That's a bottomless pit. The more of that you get, the more you want. But that's what the world tells us. See, and that's what's so deadly and so destructive about the wisdom of the world. It leads to ruin. But if we teach people the secrets of, of servitude, one of these mysteries of God that enables us to live life as, as we want to live it. And we're building with gold and silver and precious stones. The world says if you want to, want to be fulfilled and pursue wealth and pursue power and influence, then you'll be happy. But we know that's not true. Jesus tells us that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then everything else will be added to us. That's one of the secrets of God. You see, if we teach people these great liberating facts about life, then we're building with gold and silver and precious stones. But if we don't, if we're preoccupied with buildings and programs and, and uh, we take into our uh, church life the thinking of the world, it's not based on the Word of God, and we're building with wood and, and straw, and when we stand before God, it will all be consumed. And the Lord will say, as I have said before, that was a marvelous performance. My, you worked so hard. But you missed the whole point. And as Paul points out, the man's destiny is not at stake here. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire. It's like a man who's, who's burned out, loses his home and all of his valuables and everything, and he escapes just with his own person. It'll be like, like that. The man himself is spared, but his work is, is lost. And I don't think any of us want to stand before the Lord naked, without anything, having built no gold, silver, or precious stones. Martha Snell Nicholson has written, When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, had I chosen his way, and I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will, will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief, though he loves me still? He would have me rich as I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with the tears that I cannot shed, I shall cover my face with my empty hands. I shall bow my uncrowned head. Lord, of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me. Mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. And you see, that's what we want. We want to operate according to God's plan and God's wisdom. Because Paul tells us it is possible to ruin God's temple. Verse 16 and following. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now remember again, he's not talking about individuals. Sometimes the New Testament refers to you individually as a temple. Here he's talking about the church. 
The you is plural. The temple is singular. You collectively are a temple. That's God's house. It's always wrong to refer to a building as God's house because that's not God's house. You are God's house. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man ruins or defiles the temple of God, God will ruin him. For the temple of God is holy. And that's what you are. Destroy is far too strong a term. The word actually means to defile or ruin. You can't destroy God's house. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is, the highest strategies and counsels of hell will never overthrow God's house. Verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If a man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. That's Paul's ironic way of thinking. If you want to really be wise, you have to be foolish in the eyes of the world. You have to choose God's wisdom, which always seems like sheer folly to the world. But if you want to be truly wise, that's the route you have to go. For, he says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless or empty or without content. They're, they're fruitless in terms of producing the kind of structure that we want to see. Now, what he's saying is that there is the possibility of of ruining or defiling God's house. And how do we ruin it? By introducing into the church the wisdom of the world. That's how we defile it. Whenever we recognize class distinctions, as the world does, and we introduce them into the church, then we ruin God's house. Whenever we give prominence to the rich, and the powerful, and we're afraid to be frank and honest with them, and we give them positions of leadership in the church simply because they're successful in the world, regardless of, of any spiritual qualifications they may have, then we're ruining God's house. Whenever we allow ambition or the desire for prominence or fame to enter into our thinking and we get resentful and bitter and angry because people don't recognize us as the great leaders that we are and give us a position of prominence that we deserve or put us on a pedestal and worship us, then we fall and pray to the world's thinking and we're ruining the church of God. Whenever we allow a critical spirit to go unchecked, we're ruining God's house. You know, from time to time, changes take place and it upsets people, and we understand that because some of the traditional ideas are challenged from time to time and people get upset. But you see, we need to be open and honest, out front about these things. And when things disturb you, you need to come to the elders and talk to them instead of allowing a critical spirit to take root, get resentful and bitter because things aren't, you think they're not right. God's way is always to directly confront the person who has wronged you or you think has wronged you instead of sweeping it under the rug. It never works. It always produces a spirit of unrest and bitterness and divisiveness. We need to be out front and honest with one another. Whenever we allow an unforgiving spirit to go unjudged and we say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget, then you see we're we're ruining God's church. Or we permit hero worship. 
We will only listen to one voice. Or we allow lax moral standards to go unjudged. You know, as we'll see in in 1 Corinthians, Paul's policy, the apostolic policy, was always to be hard on ourselves and tolerant toward the world. And the odd thing is we've turned that backwards. And we're very judgmental and critical and harsh toward people in the world and very easy on ourselves. And Paul says it needs to be the other way. If we don't do so, if we don't reverse that order of things, we're ruining God's, God's temple. And then in, in conclusion, in verses 21 through 20, 23, Paul says, So then let no one boast in men or what they say. You see, that's his point. Don't base your thinking on the wisdom of men, regardless of who it comes from. Regardless of what the Christian world says about that man, unless what he says is found in God's word, don't boast in him. Don't listen to him. Ground your thinking in the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of men. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Why would you limit yourself, Paul says, by building your whole life on one man when the whole world belongs to you? You can have Paul, you can have Apollos, you can have Cephas, you've got the whole world, life, death, everything, the whole universe, and the God of the universe is yours. And Paul says you can't have it both ways. You can't have the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God at the same time. If you have the wisdom of man, then you're limited. But if you have the wisdom of God, then you, the whole world is yours. And as a matter of fact, Paul says, the church in Corinth doesn't belong to me. I belong to you. We're accustomed to referring to a church as Dr. So-and-so's church or Reverend So-and-so's church. And you hear pastors say, this is my church. That's not so. Paul puts it just the other way around. The leadership belongs to the church. They're a resource to be used. That's all. Servants to be tapped and used in whatever way God sees fit, but nothing more than that, just resources. And you have far more. You have the whole world at your disposal. All of the resources of the infinite God of the universe. Why settle for anything less? When I first came to Boise, uh, I was had a hard time cashing checks. I guess I have a, I just don't look uh, trustworthy or something, but I remember on one particular occasion going from one place to the next trying to cash a check, and I had a local account, but no one would cash a check for me because I didn't have any identification. I had an out-of-state driver's license, and, and they'd say, do you have a check cashing card? I'd say, no. They'd say, well, we can't cash your check. So after about a week of that, I went to the uh, bank and I said, I'd like one of those check cashing cards. And the man said, you have one. And I said, I do. And he said, yeah, it's on the back of your visa card. And I looked and sure enough, there it was. And I'd been carrying it in my wallet for a whole week. And uh, I was limited because I didn't know what I had. And that's what Paul is saying. What you have is is the greatest resource in the world. Why limit yourself? Why follow one man exclusively? It's always wrong to follow one man or for one man to insist that we all follow him. 
Why be limited to the thinking of the world when you have at your fingertips the resources of God himself, the deep things of God? There's no end to what can be done and accomplished by a body of believers who grasp that fact. And Paul says, that's what I wanted you to know when I came to Corinth, that you could tap into God himself. But I couldn't tell you that because you were thinking like men. You were counting on men. But I want you to know that now. When I came to Boise, the thing that impressed me about this city is the large number of churches that we have here. There's one on practically every corner. And one of the things that struck me is that we cannot just play church. We can't just be another church because there are many of those, many of them very vital. I don't say this in any condemning way at all. But we can't just be a church. We need to be characterized by the wisdom of God. Be unique in that, re- in that way. Base our, our individual life and our corporate life on the wisdom of God and not on tradition and not on the wisdom of men. And if we do so, there's no limit to what God can do through us as his people. Let's stand together pray, shall we? Father, forgive us for uh, our, our tendency to, uh, to count on everything except you. And we thank you that you're so patient with us and understanding. And never withdraw. Constantly offer yourself to us and remind us of the mighty resources that are ours if we'll simply receive them. Teach us today to appropriate what you are to be what we need to be through this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.